Well, hello, everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. We are going to be taking a t- another turn back to Acts this week. So if you listen to the last couple of weeks, we took a brief sojourn. You see what I did there? We talked about that in the last podcast. Uh, sojourn in Hebrews. So we uh, talked about how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant, than the law, than Moses, than Melchizedek. Then we talked about um, the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews and how um, the patriarchs of old look forward to Jesus and the faith that we have, but we also, along with them, long for a heavenly home, one that transcends this earth. And now we are going back to Acts. And just to remind you where we left off last time when we were in Acts, we were in chapter 11, and we're going to be in chapter 12 today. So in chapter 11, we really get a recap of uh, Peter's experience with Cornelius. So um, Peter has this vision about unclean foods, and it's related to the Gentiles. And um, this guy Cornelius, who is a Gentile but fears God, gets this message to find Peter. Basically, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius and his family and his friends. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and the church is starting to realize that the Gentiles are also included in the plan of salvation. So that's kind of what happened right before. I mean, Peter was telling uh, the church um, in Jerusalem about what had happened with him and Cornelius. So that is kind of where we left off. Um, but we are going to be in chapter 12 today, going to be reading most of this chapter, see if we get to the end of it. Um, but we're going to start off um, reading verse 1 through 5, talk a little bit about that. Um, then we'll move on to the following sections and talk about some things that we can bring out and that um, I think are valuable for us to understand this week out of this chapter. So starting in chapter 12 of Acts with verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So um, we get uh, right off the bat that Herod um, is on the scene and he is um, deciding that he's going to persecute the church. And ultimately what we find out um, from verse three is that um, he found that it pleased the people that he was in authority over. So he figured he might as well do it some more. So unfortunately, James, the apostle, is killed. Now, this James is the one who is the brother of John, as it says there in verse 2. In the rest of Acts, we're going to get a lot of James, the brother of Jesus. So he's going to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he will be the James that kind of continues throughout Acts, and then we'll write the book of James. Uh, But James, the brother of John, you may remember James and John um, ask for the ability to sit at Jesus' right hand. He says, that's not mine to give, but he's like, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink. They both say we will. Well, James uh, dies as a martyr. We see that he does ultimately uh, drink of the cup that Jesus drank, um, being put to death. Um, And James becomes the second martyr that we see in the book of Acts after Stephen, but he's the first of the apostles to be martyred. Um, Now, you'll probably remember that Judas dies, but not as a martyr. Um, He commits suicide, and um, ultimately he had abandoned Jesus at that time. So James becomes the first of the original apostles. Um, to be 
martyred. And so that's kind of the scene. So when Herod does that, he sees he gets a positive reaction. So he says, hey, well, they like that. I bet they'll like it if I do this to Peter too. So um, he arrests Peter, but unfortunately the timing was a little bit off um, and it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So um, Peter's execution has to wait. Herod knows it's not cool to kill somebody during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows the Passover. So when Jesus is crucified, he is actually crucified on a, he's crucified on a Friday. He took the Passover meal on that previous night with the disciples, where we kind of get the uh, initiation of the Lord's Supper. And so um, the Jews didn't feel, I guess, too reticent to kill him during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which falls, again, right on the heels of Passover, um, though they did wait till after Passover. So the symbolism there of Jesus kind of being the Passover lamb that's celebrated um, is, is definitely an important part of the, uh, of the story there. Um, but Herod decides he's going to wait because he doesn't think that the people will be quite as happy if he, um, if he executes Peter during this extended Passover celebration. So Passover and Unleavened Bread kind of go in together. So... He uh, has some guys guard Peter, obviously, until um, he's going to be executed. And so it says four squads of soldiers. So the four squads would have each been made up of four men as well. So we've got about 16 guys here, most likely. And it's also most likely they would kind of rotate in four-hour shifts or three-hour shifts. I'm sorry. So three-hour shifts for each of these four groups. Um, and that way, the guards would be nice and alert and wouldn't uh, get to... Um, complacent as they're guarding Peter. Um, and then it says, uh, even we're going to look later that not only were there four people guarding him, but two were just sitting right next to him in the cell. So it's pretty significant. They do not want Peter being broken out of prison, escaping prison. That would not go well. Herod knows that the people want him, uh, to die. So he's going to try to make that happen the best that he can. So, um, but we see in verse five that the church, um, while Peter was in prison, they were praying for him. So I'm taking a calculated risk here. In the first few minutes of the podcast, I'm going to talk about Greek grammar, which um, could easily cause some people to head for the hills, but I'm taking the risk. We're going for it. So um, two of the past tenses in Greek, um, there's other ones, but two of them, one is an aorist, A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist is one of them. And the, another one is called the imperfect. So the aorist is, it kind of looks at the event um, kind of from the outside. It's not really concerned with what's going on in, in the action. So for example, um, I went on a hike yesterday. That would be an example of using an aorist. So I went, it's just, I, you know, I went on a hike. You don't really know anything about what happened in the middle of it, right? So whereas the imperfect, it's um, kind of focus is an ongoing or continuous action. So I might say, I was hiking all day yesterday. Now I'm basically, I'm communicating about the same event, but the way I'm communicating about it is a little different. One says, oh yeah, I went on a hike that it, it's over, it's done with. Other one kind of emphasizes, I was hiking all day. Like this was an all day trek. It even maybe has the tones of it was difficult um, or a lot of fun, depending on how into hiking you are. So those are the two examples. So we, what we have here in this verse in, uh, verse five is we have a use of the imperfect. So the intention there is to emphasize this is an ongoing, repetitive, continuous action. So 
if I'm reading from the ESV, it says earnest prayer. That's kind of how it sums it up, uh, which honestly, I feel like they did a little bit of injustice to what was really going on in terms of, you know, people don't really use the word earnest that often. So it's giving this idea that they're doing it really intentionally. It's very meaningful to them. They, their hearts are in it. Um, but the way that it, it reads in the Greek, you could, if you were to translate it in a really ugly, but um, kind of wooden accurate way, it'd be prayers were continuously being made constantly by the church. So not only do you have um, the imperfect tense, that kind of continuous tense, but there's also an adverb in there, meaning constantly. Thanks, Mrs. Riley, for teaching me what an adverb is. And so not only do you have this repeated continuous action in the verb, but then you get another adverb that says constantly. So there's just a ton of emphasis, like this church, these people, they were not just saying a prayer, they were praying, like they were all about it. They were doing it constantly. Um, and ultimately that's what they felt like they could do for Peter. They didn't have any way to break him out of prison. They didn't have the keys to the cell, to the shackles, whatever. They didn't have the kind of force to break into a prison, but they know that they have God on their side. They know that God hears them because they are his people, because they are his church. So when we see this emphasis here in verse five, we can't separate it from the rest of the story. This prayer, this act of praying by the church is a major character in this story. And we're going to see how it plays out. But there's an emphasis here that prayer is key to what is going to be happening. And we're going to talk more about that as we go on. So moving here into verse six, it says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we get this miraculous escape. Also, we get another incident in the New Testament of Peter sleeping. So Peter is one of the sleepiest characters in all the New Testament. You may remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets caught sleeping three times. Though it wasn't just him, it was James and John, uh, the same James that was executed earlier in the chapter. Uh, and then John, his brother, they were all sleeping. But it just makes me think that Peter must be a deep sleeper because think about it. He's in prison about to be executed and like it takes a, an angel striking him to wake him up. So this word struck is the word patasso. It usually has... A very, like a negative, like hit kind of, con, kind of uh, connotation, not like a tapped him or touched him or shook him lightly. It's kind of a more um, significant strike. So it's almost like Angel really had to wake him up. So sleepy Peter, um, good for him. I guess he was able to sleep the night before he was executed. Maybe he was feeling confident he'd be broken out. Who knows? But given the uh, fate of James, I think that'd probably be unlikely. Um, but anyway, so he gets up. Um, the chains fall off. Everything just kind of opens before them. The angel brings them out um, in this miraculous way. The gate opens on its own. And then Peter, it says that he was kind of, you know, he 
wasn't maybe quite fully awake is what it kind of sounds like. And so the angel leaves, he finally, I guess, finally comes to, and he's like, Whoa, that wasn't a dream. I'm actually out here. So Peter, um, as you can, you can imagine the church was probably praying that he'd be released. We don't know exactly, obviously what they're praying, but um, these prayers are answered and the Lord delivers Peter. And so Peter is out of there. So then we move on to verse 12. It says, when he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter is freed. Um, he realizes that people are still um, probably after him. It says when he realizes, I assume he realizes, wait, wait, I was rescued from prison. I should probably you know, get a move on. Um, so that's what he does. And he goes to a place where Um, These church members are gathered. Um, This is a house of Mary. Uh, The mother of the name we get is John, whose other name was Mark. Now, we know, of course, they didn't call him John, whose other name was Mark back then. They called him John, whose other name is Mark. I apologize for the dad joke there, but it was just, it was just right there. And I couldn't help myself, but I added the crickets for your sake, um, because I knew that is probably the reception it would have gotten. So John, whose other name was Mark, he will come to be known later as John Mark. The reason we're given this information here is that John Mark is actually going to become a pretty important character in the New Testament. He is going to be a part of the, some of the missionary journeys. He's going to cause a significant a uh, little rift between Paul and Barnabas later, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. So that's kind of the reason he even comes up at all. But that is where Peter goes. He comes in, knock, knock, knock. Rhoda answers the door. And she's so excited that instead of actually letting Peter in, she goes and just starts telling people that he's there. So Peter's still standing outside. You know, he's only being hunted by the guards at the prison. So no big deal. He can wait. Um, She goes in and she tells him. And basically what she tells him is, hey, everybody, what we've been praying for has come true. And the people say to her, you are out of your mind. So even though they've been praying it, the people don't believe her that Peter has actually been delivered. But eventually, after they argue a little longer, Peter's still knocking. They open the door. They see that it's him. They're, They're amazed. He tells them what happened. And then he tells them, okay, you need to tell everything that happened to James and to the brothers. So this James being um, now James, the brother of Jesus, um, Mary and Joseph's biological son, um, who who I mentioned at the beginning, will be taking over the Jerusalem church, who's in charge of the Jerusalem church and um, is the James that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, So that's what he tells them to do is go tell them. And then he leaves and goes somewhere else, probably knowing that uh, he doesn't want to maybe lead anybody back to this place where the church is gathered. So after that happens, um, we're going to see a little bit more about um, 
what happens in the fallout um, with Herod. But first, I just want to stop and just take a little moment to talk about um, prayer, prayer in our lives. So we see in this passage, I think we see some some really positive examples of how we want to view prayer. But then we also see kind of some of the negatives that we can be tempted towards. So we talked about how the church was praying and they were praying uh, continuously, constantly. It was that's what they were doing. That was their solution. Their solution was to submit this need, this prayer request before God, because they knew that Peter was really out of their hands in a lot of way. Peter um, was not reachable for them, but they know that Peter was cared for by God, that um, God was using Peter mightily, so they prayed on his behalf. Um, and I think that when we think about prayer in our lives, sometimes we misunderstand what the point of prayer is. We have some things that we think or some things that we say, but I think we misunderstand what the point of prayer is. I want to talk specifically about one, I think, misunderstanding that we have. Sometimes I think for us, we can reduce prayer to something that um, is is really lesser than it actually is. I, I often hear people say, well, the point of prayer isn't really so that God will do what we ask, but it's just about the communication with him. He wants us to communicate with him. He wants to have a relationship with us. And so he asks us to pray so we can have a relationship with him. I think there is definitely truth to that statement, but some, I think it's kind of the least common denominator of what prayer is. It's like the easiest thing to reach because really um, that kind of prayer doesn't really require a lot of me in terms of my faith. So what I mean by that is, uh, and I think sometimes we say this because we realize that prayers aren't always answered. And so this is kind of a, a way that we explain it. Well, um, prayer isn't really about asking God for what you need and hoping that he'll deliver it, but rather it's just about the relationship. Um, and sometimes I think we use that to kind of maybe even protect ourselves a little bit uh, from the disappointment that we experience when prayers aren't answered. Because let's be real, when we earnestly pray for something, when we can when we're praying continuously, constantly, and we see that request not come to fruition, it can be challenging for us. It can really challenge our faith. So I think we maybe uh, reduce what we think prayer is in response to that. And I think that is a mistake. I think it's a mistake for us to do that. I Again, I want to affirm fully that I do believe God, a, a portion of prayer is that um, it's a way of us communicating with God and growing closer to him. And I believe that's definitely a positive consequence that comes from prayer. But if we reduce prayer to that, um, then we don't believe that we have to throw out a lot of scriptures that um, command us to pray for things um, and to make our requests known before God. Um, The reality is that God listens to our prayers. And we see in this instance that the church prays fervently for Peter and Peter's released. Now, you can get into the weeds of thinking, well, if they hadn't prayed, would Peter still have been released? Obviously, you can never know for sure that answer. But I think that we can't just dismiss it as, well, Peter was going to be released whether anybody prayed or not. Um, It seems like that was part of it, especially given how much Peter is going to continue to have a ministry ongoing in the church. Um, But I think we also need to believe what God tells us about prayer. And when he tells us to pray continually, when he says, make our requests known, when he says, 
Um, if you believe you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer um, in, in Matthew, Jesus is going to tell that to the disciples. We have to be able to take him seriously too, even when we don't see maybe always those requests being answered. Ultimately, our prayers are from, even, even when they're spirit-led, um, oftentimes our humanity can get in the way. Um, and so we may be praying something that we think is the best, but may not ultimately be God's best or the plan that he has for us. And I think that instead of taking those quote unquote unanswered prayers, and I don't want to put it that way because sometimes prayers are answered in ways we don't expect or prayers are, uh, left un what we would say unanswered, but that are to our benefit. We need to take him seriously. That prayer is a way of us making our requests known to him, that it's more than just, a, oh, yeah, we're going to chat on the telephone, um, but that God it listens to our prayers and that he takes our requests seriously. So I think for us, we can't get too disappointed, bogged down when prayers aren't answered. And ultimately, we get to trust in the sovereignty of God that his plan is better, but that shouldn't keep us from making our requests known to him, um, really just because he commands it throughout scripture. And I think that would actually be another uh, I think we could spend a whole other podcast talking about different ways that God tells us to pray. But um, in the scripture, we're commanded to pray. God wants us to make our requests known and he ultimately takes care of us. And he ultimately listens to our prayers. Even again, if we don't see them, quote unquote, full, fulfilled or answered in the way we expect, uh, we can trust that God has our good in mind. And, and his heart is to do good for us, even if it means temporary difficulty, which can lead to greater good, as we all know, um, how trials work in our lives. Um, and I, I have to add on to this, not only do we sometimes misunderstand the point of prayer, but it's kind of related. We sometimes don't believe in the power of prayer. Sometimes prayer is our last resort. I know that's the case for me, 100%. I'm going to go ahead and go through my checklist. Of, okay, what can I do about this situation? What can I say? What can I give? What can I uh, do physically? What can I do emotionally for this person. Okay, I've got nothing else. I guess I'll pray. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, but I think it's because we sometimes have trouble believing in the power of prayer. And we see that right here in this story where they're praying fervently, earnestly. And then, and again, we don't know exactly what they're praying. They may have been praying that he would die quickly or that he'd just be in prison and not killed or that he'd have a light sense, whatever it may be. But I have to think that some of their prayers would be related to him getting out of prison. And so when this prayer is answered on Peter's behalf uh, by the Lord, when he answers the church's prayer for Peter, they don't believe him. Somebody comes and tells us, hey, Peter is at the gate. And they're like, mm, no, you're out of your mind. That couldn't be happening. But again, you have to think that's partly what they were praying for, praying earnestly. But even... Even this Acts church, even this church, which we often look to as an example of, of what great faith they had, and rightly so, even they had times where they doubted, where they doubted the power of prayer. And we, we definitely do the same. Prayer is ultimately our best tool, really, in anything that's going on in our lives. Prayer is number one option. And there, there's a reason that prayer is a number one option. Prayer is our petition before God and an expression of our faith. Ultimately, prayer says, God, I know that whatever this is, is not in my control, whether it's something we view as really big or maybe even something kind of small. Prayer is 
a recognition that God is the one who ultimately is going to orchestrate and bring these things about. Prayer is asking God for something because we know ultimately he's responsible. So we express our faith and we express our dependence, I think is another just so important for us, especially as um, Americans in a very individualistic society where we are very self-reliant. Prayer is just a way of laying that down before God and saying, I know that you are the one who is in control. So prayer should be our number one option, not only because God is the one who actually has power over any of the situations, but also it puts us in the right place. It puts us in the place of, I am your servant, Lord. I am not the one who enacts goodness in the world. You do so through me. Anything that I might be able to provide to somebody is only because of who God is, because of what Jesus has done. So I think that not only do we misunderstand the point of prayer, sometimes we don't believe the power of prayer, but we sometimes also make prayer just an afterthought when it should be the first the first thing that we do when we react. Whether a situation is big or small, I think that prayer just, it creates something in us. Prayer creates a, a spirit of humility and a spirit of worship toward the Lord because we put him in his place and we put ourselves in our right place, which is as his servants. So we have to, we have, to have grace for ourselves and, and know that we're not going to get it right all in the day. Even this Acts church, they struggled with having faith that God was going to answer their prayer. But prayer is the answer. Prayer is what is the greatest tool that we have in our toolbox as believers um, for temptation, for illness, for um, other difficulty, mental illness, mental difficulties, relational difficulty, whatever we have. All of those things. Um, there are there are human solutions which are. I think a gift from God, we think about like medicines, things like that, a gift from God, but ultimately prayer is our number one. Um, and praying for something that you think has an easy cure from a human medicine standpoint, still a great exercise. Cause again, it reminds us who we are and who God is. And so as we close up on chapter 12 here, let's kind of look at the opposite. So we see what happened with the church. Let's see what happens on the other side, the people from whom Peter escapes. So the first thing is that Herod comes and goes to look for Peter. He realizes he's not there and he puts all the guards to death. So the escape leads Herod to order these guards executed. His sin ultimately leads to the death of these guards. A, his sin in trying to have Peter murdered just for the approval of people um, leading to the imprisonment in the first place. And then uh, the escape the choice to have them executed um, out of anger because it made him look bad. And we see Herod reacting um, to a sinful situation with more sin. So then we get this little story about um, Herod basically has these people come before him asking for peace. And they're basically just, you know, bowing down to Herod and Herod gives this great speech and everybody's just, Oh, this is amazing. It says they shout, they shouted the voice of a God and not of a man. And so Herod is getting exactly what he wants, the approval of man. He's acting in his strength and he's getting exactly what he wants, which is the praise of man. But then it says in verse 23 of chapter 12, it says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So yikes, that's pretty gross and pretty brutal. You probably heard the word struck when I read that. And guess what? 
Same word. Same word is back earlier when the angel um, hits Peter. We see a huge contrast there, obviously, in the result. One is a strike that leads to Peter's salvation from the from the imprisonment, from death. And one is a strike that leads to Herod's uh, judgment and ultimately his death. And I think what we see here and something that um, is, to me, really comes to the surface when we think about that and how these these two incidents kind of parallel each other is that God treats his people differently. Um, God had, so let's say we take that, okay, struck, maybe it was like a hard strike in the ribs or something like that. It was something that maybe was hard, maybe bruised him a little bit, but it was ultimately used for his good. Whereas those who are not seeking the Lord, those who are seeking the praise of men instead, that strike from the Lord, it's not, it's not the, for his good, it's for God's judgment. It's for God's justice. And ultimately, God's justice is taken out on Herod as he tried to persecute the church. And we see that um, the praise of men couldn't do anything for him then. Uh, the praise of men wasn't enough to save him. And that ultimately, where he was putting God in his life led to his downfall and to his judgment. So that's kind of what we see in this chapter. And I think if there's just one takeaway, just really to have a heart that is purposed in prayer to really give God glory, to give God his proper place and to give us our proper place, that we don't use prayer as a backup option, that we don't think that we uh, should go with our quote unquote best options first and then rely on prayer, but that ultimately anytime we see a situation that is difficult, that our first thought is I should bring this to the Lord because he's ultimately in control of this. And then we can act in obedience out of that. But having a heart that is just tuned toward, this is who God is, this is who I am. God is in control. I am his servant. Is going to lead us down a path that will be for our good in the long run, even when it's difficult. Even when sometimes we see those prayers aren't answered, we can have faith that God is doing something, even in those times when we're disappointed, that is going to be for his glory and for our good. Thank you.